Yes, hello everybody. In our ITB podcast series, Let's Talk, we come together today to speak about something very fascinating, the Sinai Trail. Sustainable hiking trails have become very popular in the last years, and there are several trails, especially um, also in the Middle East by now. I know about the very successful Jordan Trail, and I also heard about the Red Sea Mountain Trail and the Sinai Trail. Um, and, and the good thing is that all these trails, they are really working with communities, the Bedouins, the people living in the villages along the trail. So these are really community-based community trail tourism projects. And I'm very happy to have um, two very interesting people with me today who um, have either walked the trail, who have developed the trail, or both. <laughs> so we have first Marinelle de Jesus. She is actually the founder of Brown Gale Trekker and as well Equity Global Tracks uh, to um, startups. And she's also founder of the Porter Boys Collective. And she also won with her team the ITB Social Entrepreneurship in Tourism competition last year with um, her colleagues from the Kushvigi English and Nomadic Culture Camp. And Yamarinelle is a former lawyer. She is now really an activist and a passionate journalist and traveler and, and, and founder in sustainable tourism projects. And on the other side, I also am very happy to have with me Ben Hoffler, who is one of the founders of the Sinai and Red Sea Mountain Trail and also of the Sinai Trail, uh, together with some local people who he will mention as well. And he's the author of the Sinai Trekking Guide. And I myself, well, a lot of people will hopefully already know me because I'm working very passionate for ITB and for the uh, ITB corporate social responsibility and the emphasis on social responsibility, because I believe that as a largest travel trade show in the world, we really have to give back and we have a responsibility towards society as a whole. So I'm working constantly for to bring sustainable thinking into mainstream tourism and responsible thinking, human rights, and yeah, to, to work for a better future because tourism can be a tool um, for, for good. The Sinai Trail is Egypt's first long-distance hiking trail. It was launched already in 2015 as a 220-kilometer route, And that took 12 days, I think, to complete. And it was involving three Bedouin tribes. It was voted at that time as a new, the best new, new tourism project. And Wanderlust and Outdoors magazines ranked it as one of the world's best new trails. And it was so successful that the Bedouin behind it didn't want to stop, but they continued developing the trail. So today it is a 550 kilometers trail taking 54 days to complete, involving eight tribes already. So, um, Ben, you are a co-founder of that trail. Can you tell us how comes that you are doing what you're doing. Um, you're living there, I understand now. So give us a little background of your of your own story. 
Well, I am a geographer by training, so I've always had an interest in the outdoor world and the peoples of the outdoor world. Uh, when I finished university, I stayed in London and I was working in an office and gradually I became quite disillusioned with doing this. So I wanted a change and I ended up in Egypt uh, for no particular reason other than I knew somebody in Cairo. When I was in Cairo, which is a, a, a big bustling town, uh, I felt a real need to escape and the Sinai was the place that I escaped to. And... Uh, the, the 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 deeper that I went into the Sinai, the more that I came to love what was there, uh, the mountains, the landscapes, um, the people, their old knowledge, skills, uh, heritage uh, that they would use to survive, travel and thrive through that landscape. Um, <clears throat> and I got pulled into um, this way of life quite unexpectedly. The, the deeper that I went... Yeah. <laughs> so um, um, can you share your experiences, how you started and how it worked to create the trail and, and who, yeah, who inspired you and, and also, yeah, where were the challenges? Uh, so uh, the first thing that I did when I went to the Sinai was I wrote a uh, trekking guidebook about the region. So, so that identified the best hiking routes through the mountains and deserts of South Sinai. These were all uh, relatively short routes. Uh, this was about 10 years ago. And it was also about the time that long distance hiking trails in the Middle East were really getting some momentum and getting some traction. So if we looked over the Red Sea, Uh, we could see projects in the making like the Jordan Trail, which is a country length uh, trail uh, conceived by uh, a guy called Tony Howard uh, that runs the uh, runs the length of Jordan. There was uh, another one called the Lebanon Mountain Trail, which was the first one in the region. And there was another one developing called the Palestinian Heritage Trail. So these were quite different concepts to uh, what I had done in a guidebook, which was identifying shorter routes. It coincided with a very difficult time for the Sinai. So this was following the Egyptian revolution. This was following unrest that happened in 2013. And it was following more unrest that uh, was confined to the northern parts of the Sinai Peninsula, all of which had a disastrous impact, not just on Egyptian tourism, but specifically on Egyptian tourism within Sinai. So yes. um, I saw the impact of this crash in tourism across the region. Um, and I thought, how could we begin to, uh, how could we create a project that would um, try and get this region back on its feet, um, provide jobs uh, in areas where none existed, um, that could show a more accurate side of this region to the world, that could challenge conceptions about it uh, being unsafe, um, and that could bring people together around one single thing rather than having them divided across um, individual projects that they were working on. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the concept of a long-distance hiking trail made a lot of sense. Um, so we began... And you met the right people. I met the right people because um, I, I was connected to them through my guidebook. So I had already done quite a lot of groundwork in finding the best people to walk with. And more than that, really the, a, kind of, uh, a, a kind of leader personality within each tribe that would be able to develop the routes, bring people on side 
um, and tie it together. So, um, so I began working with um, people from three different tribes to begin with. One of them was called Masalam Abu Faraj from the Tarabin tribe. Uh, we had another guy uh, called Faraj from the Mazena tribe. And then we had another guy also called Faraj from the Jebalaya tribe. Um, and all of them uh, took a very strong role in uh, working to develop the roots and then to um, bring those roots together into one single long distance hiking trail that would cross three different tribal territories. Uh, it was very important that when we created that trail, it was divided in a way that would be equal between each of those three tribes. Um, mm. It had to be four days crossing um, the the lands of each tribe. So four days with the first one, four days with the second, and four days with the third. The way that it would work would be that people would um, go with each tribe through its own territory to the borders of the next, at which point... And, and uh, within the tribes, of course, they, they would have to talk to their um, to the elders and so on and see whether they were okay with it. Uh, I, I mean, most of the people that were selected would uh, to, to be those leaders were from the group that would be considered the the elders of the tribe. These, these weren't young men. Okay. These, were, these were older people to begin with. Uh, okay. so they had a lot of weight within their communities um, and they had that ability to not just bring people on side within their own communities, but to cross those tribal divides uh, and make things work across a, a, a tribally divided region. So uh, so certainly they had to to definitely belong to a group of people that had the experience and the, the diplomatic skills um, to, to pull that kind of thing together. And all of those people are, are the co-founders of the project today. Yeah, and I, th I think the, the, from the very beginning you were um, you t took attention that it would really be owned, the project would really be owned by these communities. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. So, so it's, it's 100% Bedouin owned today. Uh, the Sinai Trail is managed um, by eight tribes today. So it expanded from a, a three-tribe route into an eight-tribe route uh, in 2018. And all of the leaders of the eight Bedouin tribes came together um, and they sat together for a whole day talking about how everything would work, what the agreements would be between them. Um, and they, they took an old Bedouin oath um, that they would... Uh, work together and stand together until the sea is dry and hairs grow on the palms of our hands, which is to say forever. And that was quite a historic thing in the Sinai. Uh, the the sheikh of the Sinai Trail said that this was the first time in about a hundred mm. years that such an agreement had been made between the tribes to um, wow. host traveling groups together. Um, and those eight tribes today Uh, oversee the project and they manage it collectively. So there's a cooperative that owns it and there's a cooperative that will manage the direction of the trail and and, and take decisions by majority on its direction for the future. That that sounds really good. Uh, dude. But, but how do you manage or how did you, from the beginning, I think, also integrate that um, there is a minimum impact of hiking? I mean, because, you know, hiking in the desert, you have this question of water conservation or how did, what to do with litter and waste and how did you uh, face that? Well, it, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, one of the things that I could say about waste is that um, the Bedouin 
the, the, so when I say the Bedouin, it might be important for me to explain a little bit about what I mean when I say that. So uh, the Bedouin are a people of, we could say, semi-nomadic uh, pastoral heritage um, who trace their roots to the Arabian Peninsula. So these are people who came into the Sinai and came into other parts of the region that we call today uh, the Middle East and North mm-hmm. Africa, if we include that in the Middle East. And they lived very close to nature, so they would move with their uh, herds of goats and camels between pasture where the rain fell, um, and they they would live in a close harmony with the natural world. So they didn't really produce much in the way of waste as as we know it today, so things like plastic bottles and uh, all all these kind of things that a typical hiking group would produce today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, So that was... That, and it is, it's still one of the challenges that we've had is, is having a really good system to manage something unfamiliar that's produced in this area by, uh, by the groups that the Bedouin are guiding for communities that historically haven't really produced it. Um, mm. But normally if they are in a homestay, I mean, they, they will just live like the nomads live or like the Bedouins live, so they would not um, produce any more uh, waste and than they, well, than them. Well, it doesn't really work like that. I mean, international hiking groups come with particular sets of demands. So uh, whereas, for example, the Bedouin would uh, move and they would drink water from wells um, and, and so forth, when hiking groups come, they often demand bottled water and, and they need foods that have packaging and that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's not it's not like the Bedouin, uh, sorry, the, the, the people who come on the hike will suddenly step into a world where none of this exists. It exists and it's brought into this world and, and it's even brought in by the Bedouin. Of course, they don't exist in a world today that looks the same as it did 50, 60, 100, 200 years ago. The world has changed, not just for, for um, the outside world, so settled world, but it's also changed for the Bedouin. So it, it's, it's been something that we've had to think about a lot. And um, so as far as we can do this, we, we minimize any of the waste that's taken on to the trail in the first place. So we would strip energy pa- any uh, packaging off the items. We would try and gather water from springs on the way where we can, where people are okay with that. Um, mm-hmm. We might purify that on the way. Um, when it comes down to food, um, we might buy things from uh, Bedouin communities on the way. So, for example, uh, we might buy a goat and the goat would be uh, slaughtered and eaten uh, on on the trail itself. So there's ways that we can try and uh, minimise our impact on that. But um, it, it's something, of course, that we've got to pay great respect to. And a lot of the Bedouin uh, as well um, take a, a leading role in doing that. They, they have always lived close to nature, and particularly the guides who work on the Sinai Trail um, take it very seriously, respecting their place, leaving the place in a good state for the others who'll follow, whether they're Bedouin or whether they're hikers, uh, and so forth. So, um, yeah, this, yeah, I think that's interesting. It's also that the travelers who decide to do that. I mean, there is a growing demand for for this kind of tourism. So these travelers are ready to 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 follow the rules. I believe. Yeah, um, they are. There's, a different, there's, yeah. A, there's also a slightly different take. So a, a lot of the, the 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 practices that we might see in the West aren't necessarily followed by the Bedouin either. So in in the West, uh, we might have a system that's a kind of 
zero impact as far as it can be. So leave no trace. Don't leave anything behind, not even an apple peel or a banana skin or anything like that. It's a little bit different in the Sinai because uh, the Bedouin would typically uh, leave things like that uh, on a rock, on a clean rock, rather than in the sand for the crows and the foxes and other animals to come and do along the way. So mm-hmm. I, I don't see tourism projects, honestly, about um, bringing in uh, an, a, a set of ideals that are developed in another place. I think it's important to um, uh, to also go with uh, standards and customs uh, that the Bedouin have as well. And, and so this is one thing that will be a little bit different as well in terms of the, the waste, but it's something at the front of what we do. Okay. So to, to bring Marinelle back into the, or to bring her into the discussion, um, Marinelle, you have been on a hike recently. You did a 24-day hike, you told me. And you have also been interviewing uh, the people over there, the Bedouins. Um, so I would like to um, that you share a little bit with us your direct experiences. So... Um, first of all, maybe, how did you manage to walk 24 days? So the 24 days is just 50% of the Sinai Trail. So I think we walk, uh, I want to say about 200 kilometers or so in total. So on average, you know, I guess I have to convert to miles because I have the American system that I'm used to. But it's probably about 10 to, to 12, 13 miles a day, which is, as a hiker, it's pretty doable uh, when the terrain is mainly flat, especially for the first part of the trek. We were walking a lot more on the desert dunes and things like that, and not a lot of uh, rock scrambling. But, um, you know, it's having said that, it's really not an easy thing to do for someone who's not experienced because it is 24 days. You're in a routine of waking up and hiking all day. It could be very hot sometimes. We also had some thunderstorms and rain and actually even delayed one of our days, uh, which made it kind of, you know, nerve wracking because we were talking about the possibility of running into floods or getting stuck somewhere. Uh, so I highly advise someone who's really experienced with trekking to do it. Uh, it's not an easy fit to feet to like just do 24 days in one go. And but the, the easy part to it is that you're carrying a day pack and you carry essentials with you, which makes it really easy. The rest of the stuff that you have, they're carried by camels. So it's a supported track, which makes uh, it more bearable for a lot of people who are not inclined to carry heavy backpacks trekking uh, over the Red Sea. Does it end at the Red Sea? No, uh, actually, it was uh, from north to south. We ended in St. Catherine, not in the Red Sea. No. Okay. So do you also, uh, according to your experiences, what would, would be your experiences with the communities you met on the way? Were they very welcoming? Did you see that they were very happy to see you? Especially maybe the women. I'm, I'm, I would also be interested in knowing the role of the women on the trail. 
Yes, I I actually spent uh, time with the women, the Hamada tribe. Uh, they're the ones who want to become guides. There's a few of them, four or five that I met. I was hosted by a family and this woman who's the first female guide of Sinai Trail, Um Yasser. And I, uh, I, so I learned a little bit about their involvement in the industry. Uh, they're very hospitable, uh, very kind. Uh, but I can tell they've had tourists in the past. It's not a place where you know, you come in and they're sort of clueless about how to, you know, host you. I can tell that they understand tourists and they know how to cater to them because they were pretty much ready to, you know, prepare the meals and prepare the hike and whatever else you're looking for as a tourist. Uh, but, you know, the same thing can be said about the men. They're very welcoming. They're very excited to learn about other cultures. They love to engage in discussions. Hence, I was able to do a lot of interviewing while on the 24-day trek. Uh, they shared a lot about their culture. I mean, I think my impression, going back to your question, about impression is that I, I want to say that before coming to Sinai Trail, I've been to so many treks, so my, a lot of supported treks actually in Peru, Nepal, Bhutan, so many other places in the world. And I think one thing that distinguishes Sinai Trail from my view is that the Bedouins themselves are actually, so, you know, something to not take for granted. Like a lot of tre trekkers, they have this idea, I'm going to climb this peak, I'm going to complete the circuit because it's a goal. But I think um, it, would, it wouldn't be a complete experience without really getting to know the Bedouins and really having those conversations and being engaged in their community. I think the Bedouins themselves are the leaders on the trail, which I often do not see on other treks in other places that I've been. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And um, and I'm very, you know, I'm very conscious of that because I've already had many experiences where the guides are the way they come come across. They're giving me a service. I pay the money and they give you the service. And this is the tourism industry that we see a lot. It's paying for a service. But what, with the Bedouins, it was different. It felt as if you're following their footsteps. But not only that, you're they're taking you to their world the old and the new. And I, I don't want to romanticize it and say, oh, going to the Bedouin community is like getting into this old world and forgetting modernity and life. You know, but Bedouins are part of the modern world too. And that's the fascinating part of it too. They're actually sort of... Um, you know, hovering between two worlds, the new and the old, and how they navigate that, it's really fascinating to see because they still have that Bedouin identity, but at the same time, they're trying to deal with what's coming to them, which is the modernity of Can you of give the us a practical example, maybe, of, um, of how you experience it? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the best the the best way to say this is uh, to share what the Bedouin has told me about the the, num the number one concern they have. They're concerned about the younger generation uh, of Bedouins. They're concerned the older generation. Uh, for example, Nasser is the one of the leading uh, you know the leaders of the trail. He actually led part of the trail, and he shared with us that, you know, he's now training younger generation of guides because of the old and the new. There's a conflict, and, and there is this sort of, you know, kind of striving for the younger generation to continue on with the traditions of being a Bedouin. And so they're concerned about the future of the Sinai Trail because who's going to lead the trail when they're gone, when his generation is gone. Mm -hmm. So they're grappling with this idea of we got to sustain this. And this is part of sustainability, right? Because right. 
and maybe this isn't something common like in the Inca Trail because you know what? The Inca Trail, you can always hire service. You can hire porters. You can hire guides. It doesn't matter. But Sinai Trail is special in that way where the Bedouins really find it a, a real problem to pass on the generation. That question of who to pass it on is a real issue for them. Mm-hmm. And so the fa- you also said you mentioned that there's also a female guide. I mean, this is something completely new, isn't it? As far as I know, yes, it's a recent phenomenon. Uh, I know Umya Sir was, I think she might have started around 2019, but the pandemic hit, so that kind of interrupted the process for her to continue guiding. But she did share her views about the industry, that she wanted to be more involved. They actually have done a lot more day hiking, I guess, in the past, and their hope is that they could have more women be involved in the industry, at least for their tribe, that part of the Sinai Trail, where they can actually do overnights because they're from their view it's normal to be walking on the mountains because they herd goats that they're nomadic they were nomads and so to them hiking on the trail isn't so far of an idea from who they are and the inclusion of the women is really definitely key i think in terms of sustainability of this this trail you know i think as a woman myself as a tourist hiking i look for that kind of female viewpoint, because, you know, definitely what Nasser has shared is so, you know, instrumental in learning about the trail, but also to have a female viewpoint adds a more completeness to the experience as far as I'm concerned. So for women to be part of that trail, if we're going to talk about passing on the wisdom and the the knowledge and the culture, I think we Mm -hmm. have to include women in passing this on to them as well. So young generation of Bedouins plus the women, that could be the future of Sinai Trail, right? To continue forth with with sharing the traditions in a complete way, in a, in, mm-hmm. in a manner where it's inclusive. Well, um, um, that's very interesting. Ben, would you um, agree? Uh, with what specifically? With the situation that this might be the future for 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 the Bedouins also to include women closer in 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 the hiking. Uh, well, I because of hiking because that's yeah the the, the process of um, uh, uh, gender equality is always uh, very complex, of course. Yeah, it, it is very complex, and I, I guess it it will vary a lot between. European societies uh, and Middle Eastern societies and possibly as well between settled Middle Eastern societies and nomadic societies. So uh, in a Bedouin society, until uh, we did this on the Sinai Trail, we definitely saw a very clear distinction between the roles of men and women in in a Bedouin society. Um, And it's accurate to say that in terms of tourism and in terms of women guiding, their participation in so far as I ever saw in the Sinai, and this was before we created the Sinai Trail, was absolutely minimal um, and largely invisible. So what we did uh, with the Hamada tribe, that's the tribe uh, to which Omyasa belongs, was really take a step out of these conventions, uh, these very strong centuries-old traditions, uh, and and help Omyasa get to a point where she could um, do what she wanted and hopefully she could inspire other people to do the same thing. 
I would say that in my experience of working in the Sinai, uh, my it's been it's hard to quantify it, but I would say probably ninety to ninety five percent framed by my interactions with men. So, as a man creating the Sinai Trail with other men, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my access to uh, women, speaking with women, walking with women, was absolutely minimal. Uh, this was a very unique thing that happened with Omiyasa, and it happened with a very supportive um, and open-minded husband uh, called mm-hmm. Ibrahim Abu Yasa. And it also happened with the support of other people in the community, but it didn't happen easily. Um, mm. it, there yeah, was- but sometimes these uh, examples are really like uh, door openers, you know. Tourism can open doors. <clears throat> In a in a in a soft way, you know, it, it can. Do. Always the first. <laughs> it, it can do. I mean, I think um, it's a little bit too early to say whether that will happen on the Sinai Trail because, as Marinel said, Omiyasa's uh, ascent to being a head guide on the Sinai Trail coincided with the pandemic, uh, which shut tourism down. But um, <clears throat> she's taken a very big step forward. She works with three other women guides in her region. Um, she is a unique personality. She's an extraordinary woman. Um, I've never met anybody like her. She's very courageous. She's very single-minded. She's stubborn in the best possible way a person could ever be stubborn. Uh, walking with her opened my eyes to a different Sinai. So I saw that the women had a different relationship with the land to the men, which was very interesting Mm -hmm. to me. I found it very interesting to see how women interacted with other women when they would meet them in the mountains. If I was walking with a man, we would pass a long way away and we wouldn't be able to see them. So it opened a door to a, a, a more female side of the Sinai when I was there. And it opened my eyes, honestly, to seeing this region just through a, a totally different lens that's been framed by a different set of constraints. And that, to me, was an education. It was something that revealed a lot of things to me that I wish I had seen and known before. So I would say it's a very valuable thing. I hope that it continues. To get there took a lot of negotiation with uh, the community. So we had to um, frame her role within a way that was um, acceptable and that would be safe for her as well. Remember, because when individuals will step outside the norms of their society, there's mm. always risk that comes with that, a kind of, um, of ostracism yeah. from, from these uh, social structures that they belong to. Uh, in the Sinai, there's this concept of honor, which is really tied up with your reputation. And I guess it probably uh, the best way to describe it is how 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 closely you conform to uh, the socially accepted norms within that society. So in stepping outside and becoming a woman guide, roaming quite freely, walking with men, that is very different to what women have done before. So yeah, it, I think it, it's it extremely with, interesting what you're saying, especially it, also is that you that you saw everything through a different eye I mean as you said also local wildlife everything um, I want to say as well that I mean this kind of thing it's got to be done very sensitively because these are individuals with places and communities 
uh, the, the consequences of stepping outside your your social norms are that your your name can be damaged. Um, what that means effectively is that you'll get less opportunities than you did before. Your relationships might change. So we've got to be realistic in in how far we can push this and and taking mm-hmm. it one step at a time and in the most sensitive way. So that's what we did with with Omyasa. Now it's important to say as well that it didn't come without pushback. So on the eve of the very first hike that we did with women, so that was Omiyasa leading plus three women guides with her, um, uh, a lot of pressure came to the women from people within the community. And what that meant was that a lot of the women, except Omiyasa, so the, the three other women, uh, would not want to be photographed at all um, or their identities to be known. So when they walked, they would wrap their headscarves completely around their face, covering their eyes as well. Omiyasa was was different in that respect. So mm-hmm. it comes with a, an amount of talking. There's been pushback on Omiyasa since she became a guide. Um, rumors have been started. Difficulties have, have come her way. So it's important for all of us who work in tourism and who, by default, say this is a good thing, which I believe it is, to also be realistic and know how yeah. far we can push it and how important it is to be sensitive about it. At yeah. the same time, um, it hasn't been taken up by other tribes. So um, mm-hmm. we've tried to bring women guides in and a number of the other tribes, particularly the ones that are more used to tourism in the region, um, but it hasn't been supported. So there, there are clearly mm-hmm. barriers that still exist in a strong way um, despite the good that it could do economically or, or in any other way to women being guides on the Sinai Trail. And I would say that's just a remarkable salute to uh, Omiyasa and how unique and strong mm-hmm. she is to do that. Yeah, but I, th- I think it's a very important discussion which we're having here now because um, um, in all parts of the world, people are, um, I mean, we as tourism practitioners, we, we're discussing how to to help human rights, how to bring uh, gender equality forward also through tourism. But uh, as you mentioned, it's so important to be sensitive and not to destroy any, any existing knots in the communities. But yeah, but they're always front runners us and and people who are um yeah breaking um the line for for others to follow so it's it's very interesting um i I also wanted to know a little bit more about um the you mentioned already during the crisis everything was down but was there any kind of resilience um in 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 that region, how did you experience it with especially with your um, tourism model? Well, we we've got a, a very big differential at the Sinai Trail to other trails in the Middle East. Uh, trails like the Lebanon Mountain Trail, the Jordan Trail, the Palestinian Heritage Trail are able to receive, and they have been able to receive since their inception, uh, millions of dollars of funding from uh, well-known international organizations like the World Bank or USAID. We can't get any of that at the Sinai Trail because it's essentially not permitted in Egypt. Um, so that mm-hmm. us. In a, in a position that's especially vulnerable to a collapse in tourism. Um, within the Bedouin community, there's always been a, a natural resilience, as you would expect, mm-hmm. for a people who've chosen to live in such a harsh environment 
um, over so many centuries, as opposed to settling down into an easier life. One of the ways that they've done it is by diversifying their economy. So alongside tourism, they will have a number of other things that uh, that they might do. Um, so tourism essentially shut down in the pandemic more than anything that we had ever seen. Tourism, as I said at the beginning, has been through a number of disasters in Egypt that have put it down to a trickle in the Sinai, but the, the pandemic stopped it completely in its tracks. So at that time, it was it was really just about keeping it ticking over as best as we mm-hmm. can through voluntary efforts. We have a good community of people around us who can help with key things. Um, and it was about the, the Bedouin falling back on uh, sometimes older ways of life, sometimes other sectors in the economy um, until the time that tourism returned and we could begin to work again. It's definitely picked up quite significantly in the last eight months. I think that um, since the lockdowns, there's probably been a huge appetite for people just to escape. And I think walking is one of the best possible ways that people can find to escape, just being out in the wide open spaces. So yeah. I think the trails have um, come back. They, they survived just. It wasn't easy, but they just survived. And now they're, they're slowly picking up again. Um, so mm-hmm. that that was a big challenge, but we got through it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really uh, also something for the future that these trails will will still um, see a growing demand because the, the whole tourism trend is towards more private, um, yeah, experiences. So um, I, I want to hear a little bit more about the the beauty and um, the maybe the experience of how of, of the landscape and what makes it is especially fascinating. Marina, can you give us a little picture of of the beauty? Well, I, I you know, it's funny because when I, I, I'm not a kind of person, a trekker who does a lot of desert trekking, to be honest. So I, I usually climb alpine mountains and peaks with snows on them, snow on them. So um, I was at first not really sure what I was getting myself into with <laughs> hiking Sinai for 24 days. And um, but I was really pleasantly surprised. It had a lot of variety. Uh, you know, you start out, you know, you know, in the desert area, you know, from the north going to, towards the south, as you go further south, the mountains get bigger and higher and you do more rock climbing or scrambling over them, non-technical. And, and you know, the challenge is different every day and the scenery is different every day. It never gets old. So my first concern was, will the view be the same every single day? It turns out that that wasn't the case. Um, and there's mm-hmm. beautiful canyons. I've, you know, I think that actually this is one of the best parts for me was seeing the canyons because they were different colors every single time, different features, different looks, different, just, just different variety of them that I, you know, I didn't realize there could be so much diversity with canyons, but also even the sand itself is different every single day, you know? So um, what, what appears, what sounds to be mundane turns out to be unique in a lot of ways. If you just, you know, give it the time and the, you know, the effort to walk through them. And there are even pools like water along the way, which was fascinating because I actually thought it would be super dry that we'll hardly be able to wash, you know, hands or face or whatever. And there were actually a few pools along the way, too. And some of them are really beautiful. You know, you can even try to dip in there, you know, a little bit, you know, and things like that, especially when it's hot. It's perfect. Um, and then you you have the high peaks uh, closer to St. Catherine, which I love. Uh, you get to 
you know, peak. You get you get to climb the highest peak in Egypt, St. Catherine. So the views are spectacular on top. And there's sunset and sunrise views as well, which to me was phenomenal. Um, so, you know, having said that, there's also the plants along the way that you can learn about, which is really an interesting. And then a lot of different stories from the Bedouin culture about mm. their lives. You know, I learned about how men and women meet and date. I learned about marriage. I learned about the different Bedouin laws uh, and so on and so forth. So all mm. of that experience to me was just you know, uh, it was just like an assault to all the senses. And, you know, of course, as a hiker, I was really happy that I hiked that many miles and finished in 24 days. I, I wanted to actually do the whole thing, but, you know, that wasn't viable at that time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. I would really like to do it when I hear that, you know, so you have the stories, to have the local wildlife, to see the beauty of the canyons. And then it's it's a different, really a different kind of tourism. And it helps you slow down, I think, you know. So would, would, would you say it's a role model for similar kinds of projects and in, in other parts of the world? Yes, I was very cautious coming into Sinai Trail because I've been to so many trails and I've seen how tourism works in these places. And like I said, a lot of them have the service orientation to them where someone pays and you give them service. And that's the relationship you have with the local people. And that really is frustrating for me because as a Filipina, you know, I I really feel like every place in the world can offer so much more than just service. You can offer so much more of who you are, your culture. You can forge human connections in a lot of different ways beyond service. And so when I came to Sinai, mm-hmm. I didn't really have too many high, so much of a high expectation because I didn't want to be disappointed. But in fact, I was really fascinated with it. And I actually realized, wow, this is just a different kind of model of tourism. And when I talked to the Bedouins, I learned that it is them who's leading it. They have the say, they have... And I think what's fascinating about it to me is that from day one, they seem to have... The say to, uh, they say about the project, they were already involved in it. They were leading it. It was their idea. It was there was ownership. When I look at Inca Trail in Nepal, you know Himalayan tracks uh, in Kilimanjaro Trail, the idea did not come from the local people. It, it, their voices were not the starting mm-hmm. point of the conversation. I love the fact that Ben engaged in conversations with them. And I can imagine how those conversations go because I do that in my work as well. That's a ton of conversation because you got to bridge those, you know, the cultural gap, right? As an outsider and then the local people. We need to learn, we need to kind of learn from this project the value of local ownership of tourism projects. Why? it's powerful and why it should continue. So mm-hmm. I honestly advocate for Signers Trail as one of the best models to look at. So if people ever have the chance to like remodel their projects, that they should mm-hmm. look into something like this. And I have my Mongolia project. So I mm-hmm. um, I sometimes yeah. consult with Ben about it because yeah. definitely he, he left footprint and he left the sort of the model that we can all follow. No, that is good, Ben. Ben, it must be good to, to, to hear that, is it? Yeah, Marinelle is a critical thinker. She takes critical thinking from her work as a prosecutor into everything she does with tourism. So uh, I know she always gives uh, honest and authentic feedback, which is the most valuable kind. Um, in terms of uh, my, my take on the model uh, of the Sinai Trail and Red Sea Mountain Trail, 
Um, I, I would simply say that, yes, of course, local ownership is the way forward. Um, creating that kind of equality where the local people of the place speak about it in their own voice will add a huge amount to it. And that will create the space that's very valuable as an interaction, not just for the, the, the hiker who's coming, but also for um, the Bedouin guides. It, it's just a valuable space of interaction for both. So in that sense, yes. Um, it's, I would, I would guess it's a good model to follow. If I went to a completely different place, such as Mongolia or anywhere else, then uh, I would also add that every place needs its own model and creating any project that is successful, like the Sinai Trail or Red Sea Mountain Trail, relies on a deep understanding of the place and a lot of research and integrating the structures, um, that work in that place into everything you do rather than taking a set of values from outside and imposing those uh, on a place so it has to be grown organically these projects honestly usually start best from the grassroots up so with a, a conversation and a cup of tea and just with a lot of listening um, and conversation mm -hmm. and and so that would be my model just start at the grassroots and make sure that all the way through you're listening to whoever you're talking to in their place Oh, wonderful, Ben. Yeah, very good set. And to be sensitive is so important. That's great. So we, we are running out of time. And uh, I just wanted to ask you whether you have um, your expectations expectations for the future for 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 general sustainable responsible tourism or for your own project so what is your wish for the future i i just wish that the the trails continue to grow um that they continue to make a positive impact for me um, there are a number of positive impacts as an economic one. So that's about creating jobs in a place where they don't exist. But it's about creating the right kind of jobs. So jobs that give people the right position in their place and that allow them to talk in their own voice and share the, the soul of that place um, with the person they're with. I, I hope that the Sinai Trail and the Red Sea Mountain Trail will underline the beauty of uh, a culture that is today um, endangered. So a lot of its traditional skills um, and knowledge and wisdom um, is disappearing as people leave the desert and settle down in the towns. Um, so I hope that it will underline that and it will remind people that we need to talk about it and think about ways that that can be conserved as a very precious piece of heritage that belongs to all of humanity for the future. Thank you, Ben. So Marinel. Well, I, I, could, I, I think I would speak broadly in terms of just my hope for the tourism industry is that we elevate the voices that are not still being 100% heard and valued. I think when it comes to gender equity, uh, I don't even see gender equity as really a gender issue. It's a human issue. Uh, it's a human rights issue, actually, not just a female male. And if we steer away from that, I think we're better off. We'll make progress. And what I mean by this is I've always been asked what women empowerment is, what it means. And to me, it's simple. Being full as yourself, like being yourself 100% and living your full the full version of you is really what women empowerment is. That means if a woman wants to be a guide and has that desire and has the skill, why not open that door? Because that makes her whole, right? So for women, 
I think it's just all about freedom, the freedom to be themselves and nothing more, really. So it isn't about men against females, vice versa. It isn't about, you know, creating sort of a disparity or any kind of tension between any anybody or even, you know, the culture argument, you know, we can definitely dissect that for the future. But I think we need to see a lot more inclusion. And I'm seeing a lot more community also uh, raising their voices, which is great. Uh, and I think that's also something that we have to value for the future in terms of tourism. How would tourism look like? And how would the experience be different if we are coming in as tourists and as guests instead of, of someone who's a consumer? We should think about invitation when we come to these places. We should think about the roles of the local people as the host, not just the people who are providing you service. Because if we do that, then there would be a much more meaningful way of truly traveling and creating a transformational experience, not just for the tourists, but also for the local people themselves so they can be fully who they are and share who they are in a way that's very raw and honest. So that's really my big, you know, goal for the future. I hope, you know, we can slowly get into that point where it isn't all about just profiting and, you know, basically extracting that we're going to go back to the basics and redo everything we know about the tourism industry to make it better. So very well said, Mother Now. Thank you so much. And I think that's really um, what we have to work for. And I'm sure that we will have other opportunities to discuss that again. So I'm, I'm very grateful for, for you, Marinelle, and I'm also grateful for you, Ben. Uh, I think it was an excellent podcast and I really liked, enjoyed every minute of it. And I hope our um, auditorium will feel the same. So thank you so much and let's stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you.